Hey, everybody. <laughs> Good to see you all. Happy New Year. Um, well, we are between series, uh, so it's one of those weekends where I, I'm telling you, I, I spent so much time trying to think, what am I going to talk about today? Uh, it's so much easier to be in a series where you know, where we, well, we got, got this next passage to cover. Uh, so uh, next week, we start our Christian sexuality series again, so part two of that. And then after four weeks of that, we go back to Romans, and we're going to finish Romans, picking up Romans chapter 12 through chapter 16. Uh, so today I decided to take uh, one of our Advent, the Advent themes. So from our series on Advent, one of the themes from that, uh, and kind of explore from a different angle. So one of the weeks we did peace. And so we talked about experiencing peace. So today we're going to be talking about how to be peacemakers. All right. So a couple of important things to say ahead of time uh, about this sermon and about peacemaking. Um, as strong, and I'm going to be leaning into peacemaking today, but as strong as the Bible is on the importance of peacemaking, the other reality that the Scripture speaks to is there are times when peacemaking is not going to work, where we have to create some boundaries, where sometimes we even have to divide over some really, really important things. So it's just important to, to realize that because we're not, it, that takes a lot of discernment. Uh, it, it probably takes lots of people speaking into your life and not just people who always agree with you to be able to come to that. I'm not talking about people just like disagreeing with you. I'm talking there are situations where people are abusive, where there's potential violence, where people are pathologically dishonest, where people are extremely manipulative. There, there are those kinds of situations. There are situations where people are addicted to things that make them think in really wild ways and act in wild ways because they're not dealing with their addiction. There's so many situations like that. So there are no hard and fast rules. It takes discernment. We're not going to explore those situations today, all right? But we are going to explore peacemaking, and we're going to go hard into peacemaking. So because understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. In the Bibles that we have in the seat rack in front of you, it's page 1,216. That's 1,216, 1,216. We pray as we always do. We're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word to our minds, our hearts, to empower us to live it with our hands and our feet and our mouths. And uh, this prayer is based on Psalm 119. Heavenly Father, your word is the light that leads us to truth that shines in the darkness. We need your light. Illuminate your truth. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to the things we need to see. Give us deeper understanding of who you are and who we are in you. Direct our steps to follow wherever you lead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Bible does call us to be peacemakers in, in all kinds of different contexts. It calls us to be peacemakers in families, in our churches, peacemakers in our uh, communities, if I could have that next slide. So Jesus calls us to be peacemakers at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount 
where Jesus gives us the Beatitudes. One of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We're supposed to make an effort towards peace with people. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. It says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, of course, those words, as far as it depends on you, means there's going to be times when you know, this takes more than one person. It takes, uh, takes sometimes an entire community, a family. It takes two people. And all of our efforts may fail. So that's, you've got to know that going into peacemaking. So as far as it depends on you. But there is, a, in Scripture, a very high bar for trying. The Scripture says more than once that we need to make every effort. So in chapter 14 of Romans, Paul says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, lifting each other up. And then in Ephesians, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. He's talking about the church, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, make every effort is not give it a try. <laughs> it's not make an effort. It's holding a high bar. It's saying make every effort to live at peace, to hold together the bond of peace, to live in unity with each other within the body of Christ. The Bible also sets a very high bar on what it means to seek peace. So, I, this is really foundational stuff because I'm going to really want to move to the practical stuff. Don't want to spend all of our time looking at what it means to be a peacemaker. So I'm going to hit you with a fire hose. Three paragraphs. They're in your outline so you can stop and look at them and think about them if you want to explore that a little bit. But this is very foundational stuff and some of it builds on what we looked at when we talked about peace a few weeks ago. So here's the first paragraph. Biblical peacemaking is about actively seeking to restore conditions for human thriving. All right, <clears throat> if that's like a whole new thing to you, I just want to take you, it, in the Scripture, when peace is spoken of in this broad term, it looks back to Genesis 1 and 2, to the conditions of human thriving that God created us to live in. When Jesus talks about the kingdom and living under His rule, His reign, it's about restoring those conditions. It's about bringing the, the heaven where God rules down to earth, all right? And so it's a reminder of that, and it's trying to recreate that. And part of the thing that it's recreating is human thriving, that we have been created to thrive in this world as God's, you know, ruling under God. So it's Oh, go back one more, yeah. So it's about seeking restorative justice. We did a series on justice last year, and restorative justice is about shalom. It's about peace. It's about restoring human flourishing where it is not found or where there are blocks to that or where people are being mistreated. So it's about restorative justice and about righteousness. Biblical peacemaking is about those kinds of things, okay? Therefore, it is not about, let's get to the next slide, it, doesn't, it isn't about conflict avoidance, all right? It's not about conflict avoidance or even an absence of conflict. Conflict can be good. It brings things out. I'm not talking about yelling. Disagreeing can be good. It's important in our lives. It's not about avoiding tough topics. I oftentimes think peace. Um, so the weekend we did peace in the family 
Advent service. They also did peace. And Danny, our, um, Danny Martin, our, our um, pastoral resident, uh, talked about, you know, it's not quiet. You know, quiet is like, why are they being so quiet <laughs> over there? He gave that example. You know, it's like, it doesn't mean things are good just because it's quiet, all right? So it's not about avoiding conflict, not about avoiding hot topics. If you do, what you're actually doing is you're oftentimes empowering things that don't improve human flourishing. When it's all about, hey, let's not talk about these things, you're, you're sometimes, you're, a lot of those cases, you're going to be bowing to the will of tyrants and bullies that are in your family, that are in your workplaces, that are in your world, in our churches, are oftentimes there are whole churches that are run by tyrants and bullies. And it's not always the pastor who's the tyrant and the bully. A lot of times it is, but it's not always. So it's not about not talking about things. Next slide. On the other hand, if you're really concerned about restorative con you know, justice and those kinds of things, and human thriving, if you're really concerned about those kinds of things, it's not an excuse for being argumentative, quarrelsome, and nasty, all right? It's because you've got a great cause that you're going after. In fact, peace is about reconciliation, in part. It's about long-term human thriving. And long-term human thriving requires strong families and united communities. Here's what I'm trying to get at here. A lot of times in our concern for where our society is going or where a person's life is going or where this discussion is going and how this person doesn't see what's happening, you know, and that kind of thing. We get so, you know, wanting to fix that situation that we actually destroy the very thing that leads to human thriving, which is strong communities and strong families. We just like rip them apart with our quarrelsomeness and with our argumentativeness and with the nastiness that we can be, all right? So that's a lot right there. That's, that's kind of the the basis of what peacemaking, biblical peacemaking is about, what it's not about, and what we're not really allowed to do. Okay, so from there, I want to ask this question. What if we could actively and passionately pursue peace peacefully, <laughs> calmly, <laughs> you know, in that sort of thing? So we're, we're looking at one of the keys, one of the keys to doing this today. One of the keys to building, to pursuing biblical peace peacefully in our families and institutions and society is to speak and act out of an abundance of love. Now, that's going to sound like a soft, squishy idea. It is not. Peacemakers speak truth from a heart of love. And I say it's not soft because the scripture is replete with making a connection between peace, peacemaking, and love. I mean, I, I did a quick search on BibleGateway.com, and it's, you know, it, it can only help you so much. You know, I put in the word peace and love and showed all the verses. Now, it doesn't show you when they're like one verse apart, one, you know, two or three verses apart, you know, three sentences, part of a paragraph or whatever. So, it's limited, but I couldn't believe the amount of results that I got. And as I read through them, not all of them were relevant, but I put some of the relevant ones in your outline. Here's one of the relevant ones, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, 13, verses 11, says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration. That's part of peacemaking. Encourage one another. <clears throat> we just saw a little bit ago, it's, it should lead to edification. Be of one mind. That's part of it the unity that we have. 
Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So there's got to be a combination between love and peace, speaking out of an abundance of love. How do we do that? How, we, how do we lovingly speak when we're making an effort to be a peacemaker, which isn't to make things sure we're all all right. But remember, we are seeking restorative justice and righteousness when we're doing that. How can we do it in a way that comes out of love? Two passages in particular are going to be foundational for that. One of them is in James chapter 1, verse 19, famous verse. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. All right, very foundational to that. But I came to a realization as I was working on this sermon that went from, I think I can preach a nice, you know, this holiday weekend, you know, we're in between series, I'll preach a nice little sermon. (laughs) And it kind of blew up on me because I came to this realization it's one of those kind of realizations, you come to a realization in, in your head and you, your very first time that you get to practice it, it hasn't moved down to your heart. This is one I really hope moves down to my heart. Really, it does. So, uh, I, have, I use a prayer app that uses the card system. And we've talked about this before. Uh, if you were around when we did our prayer series about a year and a half ago or so. So, there are certain cards that pop up every day, some that pop up every once in a while, and they're under, grouped under. So the verse prayer, the passages of Scripture that I pray uh, actually come up every day, and I've got them set to come up every day. I don't pray every single one of them every day. One of the ones I pray very, very frequently that comes up is based on this passage in James. And so the prayer that's written on the card digitally says, Father God, in every conversation and circumstance, remind me, empower me, and lead me to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And so I want to live that. I really want to live that. But the realization hit me this week that I really do think of this verse as a three-step formula. And it's not. I think of it as a technique. There's technique in there, but it's really not meant to be just a technique. Uh, It's like... Well, I'll be a more patient person if I just listen more and if I talk less. But that is a woefully (laughs) inadequate way of looking at that verse. James 1.19 shows us how to be peaceful peacemakers, but it's more than a technique, more than a formula. Listening is key to understanding. Okay, so this is the connection. This is the realization. Listening has to be about understanding. And it can't just be about understanding. It has to be about wanting to understand. So, it, it, you know, you studied communication theory at all, marriage, you know, communication, that kind of thing. You know that listening isn't just about keeping your mouth shut. If you think you're, by keeping your mouth shut, you're listening um, you're probably not, number one, and number two, the other person doesn't feel like you're listening. <laughs> you know, listening needs to be active. You need to be kind of interacting with what the person is saying, asking questions, really trying to understand. But you've got to want to understand it. This is why I say it can't be a technique. And so part of that realization came 
as I came across this passage. It was really through a story that I heard that I'm going to tell a little bit later. But then this passage came around. So in Proverbs 18.2, it says, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Does that hit anybody between the eyes? <laughs> All right. So if we're going to put that in a positive terms. Wise, the wise, because that's what Proverbs does a lot. It talks about this is a foolish way to live, this is a wise way to live. A wise person takes pleasure in understanding. And that applies to all kinds of things, but it certainly applies to relationships. Okay, so I don't think that when James said, you know, it's, it's um, we should be quick to listen and slow to speak, that he is saying, just shut up. <laughs> and let the other person talk. I don't think that that's what he's talking about. He's talking about something more because a wise person seeks to understand. If there's a book that is most like Old Testament wisdom literature, it's the book of James. So <clears throat> let's look at this whole idea of being slow to, you know, quick to listen and slow to speak and how that ties into peacemaking. So I want to talk about three things. Peaceful peacemakers, first of all, explore backstories. Now, this is only one aspect of this. We could have gone in a lot of different directions, but I just decided I'm just going to focus this in because it ties to the story that brought so much realization to me. So this is one of the most important things when we're trying to be peacemakers is to really, with the person with whom we have a disagreement, is to really kind of get the backstory a little bit about why they believe and holy convictions that they hold to. And this was driven home to me in the story that I heard in an interview with a communications professor, an author named Quentin Schultz. And so Quentin Schultz was telling a story and he said, this is, I grew up in a very, very chaotic and stressful home. His father was an alcoholic and never got help for it and died when he was young. His mother suffered with paranoia and schizophrenia. And uh, he said all she would do in her paranoia, she would just criticize, 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 criticize. That was how she, it kind of came out in her. He grew up not loving his mother. I mean, it was, it was that stressful and chaotic. So he gets his first job as a professor at a university. And it's not far from his mother's house. And he decides to go see her out of obligation as a Christian. I, I really should do this. This is what God would have me do. I, I should go say hi. And so he's on his way there, and he's preparing himself for what's going to happen because it always happens. And while he's driving, all of a sudden it occurs to him, and he says, I think it was God because I don't know where this came from. But the thought occurred to me, I've never talked to my mom about her growing up in the Depression. I should ask her about it. And he gets there, he knocks on the door, she's like, she doesn't even say hi. She's just kind of looking at him like, you know, filled with fear and stress because of, you know, she doesn't have a complete grasp of reality. It's filled with fear or with the paranoia. But she invites him in. He gets ready as they sit down that she's going to begin criticizing him. And then he remembered, ooh, ask her the question. And so... In a sense, just a deflect, he just says, Mom, what was it like to grow up in the Depression? I've never asked you about that. And so she thinks a little bit, and 
she started to talk about how difficult it was for her and her sisters, and she goes into detail about that, and then she says, we also took in other girls whose parents couldn't take care of them. And then she, he said this in the interview. She went on and started crying, and it was a moving thing, and I started crying, and I realized for the first time in my life I was starting to love my own mother. Um, he had heard her backstory. And, and this was, as a communications expert, this is what he said in a Christian. He said, listen, we hear people's backstories. It can often awaken love. It can awaken love in the other person, awaken love in ourselves and compassion, deeper understanding. Of course, it's not always so dramatic. In fact, you may never have such a dramatic you know, experience by hearing somebody's backstory. But if a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, which would mean in understanding someone's story and why they are the way they are and why they say the things that they say, then the wise person actually takes pleasure in hearing a person's story, takes pleasure in that. So here's my realization about James 1.19. Listening is not, only le not only leads to understanding, it also has the potential to unlock love and compassion, even for someone with whom we vehemently dis disagree or someone that's actually even hurt us over time. Listening to understand unlocks that, but listening to understand also unlocks uh, love for people who have struggles that are very much different than yours. And maybe out of those struggles, they've chosen to live in a way that's very different than the way that you've chosen to live. And so this, this applies to the series that we go back into next week, the sexuality series. And, um, and so I, you know, next week, just a reminder in that series, we say middle school and up, and I, we don't have that warning out there today, so I'm going to be careful about the way that I speak about this. You can read between the lines. So I heard an interview with a Dr. Red, uh, Greg Coles. He's interviewed a lot in the sexuality series that our youth are using. They start, they start back into the series right after we do. And he talked about in the interview, he was talking about growing up in a Christian family, going to church, great parents, uh, good church. Participated in youth group when he was 12 years old. They separated the boys from the girls, and they gave him each talk, and he was in the boys' one, and, and one of the things that they talked about made a lot of emphasis because of partially, historically, what was happening in churches, what they were talking about in those days. And, and uh, you know, they said, you know, you boys are really going to struggle to look at some pictures that you shouldn't look at. And, um, and here's, here's what he said in the interview. He said, I discovered that I was remarkably really good at not looking at those pictures that they were talking about, which made me feel for a period of time like I was the holiest 12-year-old boy in the world. They told me all the boys would struggle with this, and I wasn't struggling with it. I think it's just because I love Jesus so much. It took me a while, a little while, to recognize that I was not, in fact, the holiest 12-year-old in the world, that I did have an experience with sexuality, a whole different set of struggles. It just wasn't one that I'd been trained to expect by my church or my community. And, and then he, he says this, very quickly I went from feeling like the holiest 12-year-old in the world to feeling like the worst possible 12-year-old in the world. 
the one that was so awful that nobody could ever bother to warn me that someone like me could exist. That, those are some powerful words and um, a, a warning to all of us as churches, as parents. So we're, we're doing this series, and there's all kinds of reasons why we're doing this series on sexuality. We're doing this series because we want to disciple our congregation in all ages with regard to what the Bible teaches about sexuality. We want to bring glory to God in every area of our lives, and we aim for the renewal of our minds. But we also want to level the playing field. And so, like the first four weeks was a lot of leveling the playing field, realizing that none of us lives to the glory of God as well as we should in the area of sexuality. So whatever, it is a level playing field. Grace abounds when we recognize we all need it that every single one of us needs it. But there's another purpose in the series. And uh, you know, 10 years ago, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this, maybe didn't even understand it, but through listening and learning, uh, my thinking has changed. And the purpose is to speak, part of the purpose of the series is to speak to the 12-year-old or 65-year-old Greg Coles of our congregation who struggle differently than the majority, but who struggle and feel deep shame because nobody talks about it. Or when they hear people talking about it, and we're experts at this as Christians, we speak insensitively about it without real understanding, with tidy little theories that have literally been disproven over and over and over again. And when I have these conversations and I hear these tidy little theories, I have to remember I was there not that long ago. I just want to take it and dismantle it. <laughs> not in a peaceful way. Okay. We got all these tidy little theories. And they're so hurtful and they're so painful for people who struggle in a different way. But when we listen for understanding... All of a sudden, those theories start falling apart. And it's not, it's, not to put, it's not to put what someone's experience is over the Bible. We never want to do that. The Bible is primary. But we need to understand that people struggle in different ways. And when our theories no longer work, we need to understand that there might be another way than the ways that we've been talking about people. Okay, so I'm talking. You'll, you'll get it in the next few weeks if you didn't understand anything that I just said. But we need to be, better understand. We need to better understand. Peaceful peacemakers listen actively, and they do so. One of the ways they do so is by exploring backstory, and they do that because they want to unlock love because they really want to understand. That's what the wise person really wants to understand. And we do that in Scripture, even with people that we disagree with, that family member or family members or person in church or person in my small group, we really want to understand. Peaceful peacemakers do that. Peaceful peacemakers also expect to find common ground. The word is not explore, it's expect. Somebody told me after the last service, I said, well, thank you for waiting until you know, I can do nothing about it. <laughs> I was just giving them a hard time. Um, I can do something about it. I can tell you that's expect, not explore. So again, 
being quick to listen, slow to speak, moves beyond technique. It's not just about being quiet and asking a few questions. It's not about listening and waiting to speak just to let the other person get something off their chest. It's, it's listening to understand, exploring the backstory, and while listening, expecting to find some common ground. Because common ground is really important. If you establish common ground with someone, you can actually have a conversation about something that's a tough topic if you can just establish some common ground. So you should expect. There's all kinds of theology for this. So Christmas, I think it was in our Christmas services, our Christmas Eve services, read a passage from Acts where Paul and Barnabas are trying to be made into gods by these people because they did this healing. Remember that? And to get to the very end of that passage, if it was Christmas Eve, it might have been the week before, but you get to the very end of that passage and the apostle Paul says to these textbook pagans, <laughs> he says, don't you realize the God of the universe who created everything puts joy in your heart? The theological term for that, and it's all throughout Scripture, you find this sentiment, the theological term for that is common grace. That God, there's special grace in Christ that we receive for the forgiveness of our sins, but there's common grace that God, to everyone, the evil and the good, offers wisdom and understanding and joy and all kinds of things. So, um, we, uh, if I could have the next slide... We are all God's image bearers, and God, by His grace, shares from His goodness, from His joy, from His knowledge, and even from His wisdom with everyone. Okay, so as Christians, we shouldn't just think that we're smarter or anything. Sometimes we're the dumbest person in the room, all right? And sometimes we're not even the, we're the unwisest, the foolish, most foolish person in the room because we're not applying what God has, has given us. We should expect to find common ground when we hear people's stories. And a great, great example of this is a story that I heard Dr. Tim Mohoff give. Uh, he is the, uh, one of the co-directors of a thing called the Winsome Convin Conviction Project at Biola University. And uh, he was talking about uh, a subscription that he had for years and years and years. It takes up a whole, these magazines take up a whole part of his bookcase, a whole shelf in his bookcase. And it's a, it's, it's a publication that is as far left from him as you can possibly maybe get. And he would get it, and he would read it, and he said the reason he did it was when he was in grad school at, um, he was in a university, and he said he was surrounded by non-Christians all the time. He, he had conversations, he could hear how other people thought about things, he could engage with them in that. But once he left, he went to work for crew for years and years, he now has been teaching for years at Biola University, a Christian college, and he's, he says, I find myself in a kind of a Christian bubble, and he says, reading this helps me hear from what might be, you know, oftentimes the other side. And so he says, reading it is infuriating, motivating, and exhilarating at the same time, oftentimes, as he's reading. So one of the articles when he got the magazine, it was years before, got the magazine and he's flipping through it. And one of the articles was how to create your own religion. Now, knowing where the publication comes from and what the authors usually go with this, it would be the kind of thing that a lot of Christians would just shake their head and say, oh, Romans 1, or, you know, you can go all kinds of passages in your mind and you go, I don't think I need to read this. I know exactly what they're going to say. But he read it 
And it didn't say what he expected. So the author at one point goes, uh, do you think you can build your own computer? Now, some of you may be able to. Most of us can't, you know. He gave other examples. Do you think, do you think, you know? No, you don't. What makes you think you can create your own religion? And the conclusion of the article was, maybe you ought to look into the more established ones. <laughs> and it, was, it wasn't what he was expecting. And it was, you know, there was some common ground there that he had with the author and with that perspective and with everybody who was reading that and convinced by that. So in another podcast episode, he invited his uh, former professor of his from UNC Chapel Hill, an expert in feminism and feminist history. It's a, it's a feature they do. It's, it's a podcast called Winsome Conviction, and I highly recommend it. It's really, really great to listen to. But they do a feature every few, you know, every couple of months, they do a feature called Getting Up to Speed, and they'll take a topic, and they'll bring in an expert on that. And so this one was Getting Up to Speed on Feminism. As far as I could tell, the professor didn't share his Christian convictions, my Christian convictions, but they peppered her with questions. And uh, I especially love one of the things that she said because uh, as kind of like to, to get her reaction or get her response to something, they quoted a famous feminist who was saying something that, was, that almost everyone, certainly in that audience, but even this lady, would find outrageous. And so... She, they quoted, and she kind of chuckled, and this was her response. She said, a movement is made up of so many different voices, and they aren't all singing from the same hymn book. They're singing different songs. They're singing in different voices. That was her whole thing. And she was like, what makes you think I would agree? Just because I'm part of that movement. Why would you think I agree with that craziness? In this case, craziness. But what do we do when we get into tough conversations with people where we have a disagreement? What do we do? We do that all the time, don't we? We lump people into a whole group of people. I hate it when people do that to me. Like, oh, you're one of those evangelicals that believe the Bible. That means you voted this way, you did this, and you believe this. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. That's not necessarily true of me. Don't lump me in with a whole group of people. So we do this to each other. We don't like it being done to us. What about someone, you might say, I thought about this, what if someone sings from a hymn book you used to sing from and you no longer agree with where that hymn book is coming from and you know where the song is going, right? Listen well anyways. Because the reality is if you listen well and you listen to understand, sometimes you find that you don't actually disagree. Like that thing that you said, I don't know. You don't disagree with everything in that hymn book. And there are even some tunes in that hymn book that you like to still sing. When we're quick to listen, we explore other people's backstory. We're asking how they, which is a great question to ask. How did you come to your convictions? This is with our fellow Christians in the church, in your small group, with a family member. How did you come to your convictions? And then don't take their first answer as like, now I can respond. Ask them, how did you come to that? And if you can think of it, 
a way to do it, ask them again how they came to that. I mean, that's where you start getting deeper into understanding and people's motivations. And if you are wise, you take pleasure in understanding where people are coming from. One more thing. When peaceful peacemakers speak, they speak gently and kindly. Peaceful peacemakers. They speak gently and kindly. So, as we said, being slow to speak isn't about shutting up. It's not about never sharing our opinion. It's not about never sharing our perspective or a concern that's on our heart. It's about speaking from a deeper understanding and then speaking in love and from love. Why is it when we're passionate about something that we, why is it that we think that we get a pass on what the Apostle Paul talks about everywhere, but especially in Galatians chapter 5? Why is it that when we see a trend in society that we are very concerned about, or we see the direction a person's life is taking, or we see the direction a politician is going, or we're in that family gathering where Uncle Charlie does Uncle Charlie's thing. Why is it that we feel that we get a pass on what Paul says in Galatians, where he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge your that part of you that's not redeemed yet. That's what flesh in this context means. Rather, serve one another, or I should say not redeemed, but that has not been transformed yet. It's still acting as if God wasn't who he is and his kingdom, not living according to the kingdom, all of that. Rather, serve one another humbly with love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. There's the, the thing that you care about is actually being destroyed by the way that you're reacting. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does that look like? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So one last story, and then one example of what this might look like. So it's a story that I heard about a, a New York theater critic named David Roman. And Roman focuses on one particular kind of theater, AIDS theater, which I didn't even know existed, but there's AIDS theater in New York. One of the unique aspects of AIDS theater is how many of the actors become too ill to act or die before the run of the play takes place. So you have to really pay attention to the playbill to see, oh, so-and-so started playing this role, this person then had to step in, but they became too sick, and this person died, and, and so now they're on the second or third understudy. And these people are taking their last days and their limited energy to communicate messages that are important to them. So how do you critique that it's <laughs> New York theater critic. How do you critique that? Honestly. And so he has this theory that he calls critical generosity. And basically, this, this is it. He says it's a mode of critique that's appropriate to the demands of the historical situation. Okay, that sounds like a dictionary definition. But let me tell you what it, what it means, what he means by that. He says he looks at the situation, of course, and he's like, it's going to be very hard to say anything critical of these people who are giving of themselves 
but I'm a critic, and actually critics play a role. And so he says he always starts, this is his critical generosity, and this is how we can do it as well. He always starts with his admiration for anything, like the play, for the actors, that kind of thing. He goes out of his way to show respect for what they're trying to accomplish and their whole endeavor. He shows respect for that. And then he shares what he loves about the play before he shares what he thinks could have been done better, his critique, or where he disagrees. So here's the final example. This is it. Uncle Charlie, I, I, you know, I wrote this about Uncle Charlie, but this can be um, niece Sally, home from her first year of college, or mama whoever. <laughs> All right, but we're going to go with Uncle Charlie. We'll pick on him a little bit. He may not be dying of AIDS, okay? But you can, when you speak, having listened, having deeply understood Uncle Charlie's backstory, having found common ground. Can you apply critical generosity pointing out where and how you agree? Speaking con compassionately to his fears, why, why is it that we oftentimes go off the rails in our passion for things? Just get so angry, so worked up, so nasty with people. When we do that, I don't know, how often, but I'm guessing it's the vast majority of the time, it's a concern that has become a, a fear that is gripping us, a fear for our country, a fear for this person that we love, a fear for a, a, a just cause that, that there are so many people suffering and nobody cares, all those kinds of things, and we go off the rails. So Uncle Charlie has fears, so can we speak compassionately to his fears before critiquing something he holds sacred that you deeply disagree with? Can you walk in the Spirit speaking with gentleness, kindness, and love? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. It takes practice. It means growing in wisdom growing in a desire to understand. I mean, that was, that was the thing that got this whole, catalyzed this whole sermon for me, was how many times I go into conversations, into just conversations with people, family gatherings, not with a heart to understand, but maybe just with a million other things, which sometimes, a lot of times includes giving people my opinion, <laughs> you know, on whatever the latest thing is. What a difference if I were to go into these situations. This is where I'm, I'm, can it move from my head to my heart? Where I go into the situations wisely taking pleasure in understanding. It transforms how those conversations go. As we begin our time of... of um, response now, responding to God's Word. Remember that God established common ground in the most extreme way that God could. <laughs> Emmanuel, God with us. God becomes truly a man, truly a man. Not only truly God, but truly man. And He goes to the cross. And instead of dismissing us, 
because we have so many stupid ideas. <laughs> and because we do so many stupid things, right? Instead of just dismissing us and saying, I've had it. He dies for us. He takes our sins on the cross. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. It's in your place. And he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that there is for our foolishness. Father, I pray that we would grow as peacemakers, that we would grow in wisdom with a desire to understand each other, that we would be people who seek peace, not, not quiet and calmness and lack of conflict, not fear of disagreement, but that we would be people who seek peace, but do so in ways that are peaceful with love, gentleness, kindness, patience. We know that can only happen as your tr spirit transforms us, work that in us, grow us in that way, that we would experience the blessing of being peacemakers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to continue respond, worshiping by responding to God, and we're going to do that in several ways. We're going to sing. We have prayer stations. So we have light stations up here where you can, as you're lighting a candle, you can pray for the light of Christ to shine in the life of someone you know who is far from God. We have a kneeling bench back there where you can go and pray. Pray right where you're at. You can sing. But let's continue our worship by responding to God together.